0: Hey there, how's it going? This is James Cripp. This is episode 14 of Agents of Everything. The title of this episode is Certainty Will Destroy Us All. Maybe. Maybe it will. I want to say right up front that this is not the first take on this episode that I have done. I've done several takes, and the reason I'm sharing that piece of information with you is because as I go through this take. I may end up repeating myself because I thought that I didn't say what I've said in this recording. And it was in a previous recording, but it's in this recording, whatever it will be. All right. So if you do hear me repeat myself, I would beg your forgiveness in advance. There's some ideas I want to share with you here that I think are very important ideas that relate to what Agents of Everything is about. Agents of Everything is about you having agency in your life, you becoming the primary creative force in your own life, being able to affect the changes you want to affect in the world. Now we have talked already early on in the Agents of Everything run of podcasts about the importance of sense-making, how it is that we all come into the world with no personal power, right? And no sense of the world. And you know, when we're babies, we need to be looked after. We're not looked after. We are in bad trouble. But our formative years, you know, as we grow through uh, our sort of toddler time and our childhood time and our teens and all of this kind of thing, this is a journey of making sense and developing some skills, but all of this is founded in sense, making sense of the world in such a way as we are able to bring ourselves to bear effectively upon it and create the kinds of outcomes, the kind of results that we want. Now. This does not work out equally for everybody. Everybody ends up making different sense of the world. And that is what shapes their engagement. If you're listening to Agents of Everything, you're probably interested in upping your engagement, upping your ability to create what you want. That means being open, open open-minded, open to new possibilities, open to things that exist beyond the sense that you have already made. And already we're touching on the heart of this subject, because if you are certain about something, you will never go beyond that certainty into the possibilities that lie beyond this is why certainty it can seem like something really appealing, it can seem like something important. I've just said you know we're charged with making sense of the world so that we can bring ourselves to bear upon it. Does it not make sense that we would want to get certainty in that. How can we act with certainty in the world if we're not certain about how things are? So surely we must need to get to certainty in order to be able to act with clarity and and whatever precision in creating what we want to create. And this turns out not to be so. And beyond that, certainty also has this toxicity inside of it. It undermines our creativity. It undermines our open-mindedness. It undermines our ability to see things in a variety of different ways. But beyond that, It can create conflicts, destructive conflicts, hugely destructive conflicts with people in our lives directly and people out there in the world that we might want to be co-creators with. I've said this before, you know, if we look at being creative forces in our lives, all creators are co-creators. We need to work with the world around us. We need to work with other people. I've often said this before. Can you create with somebody who sees the world in a very different way from you? Can you solve problems with that person? Now, in order to address the challenging issues of our time, if you are interested in doing so, not everybody who's interested in this podcast is interested in the broader trends of life and where the world is going and being a co-creator of life on earth in general, they're just interested in their own personal projects. That's absolutely fine. But wherever you're at, you're going to end up having to work with people who see the world very, very differently from you and certainty. It's going to be an enemy for you in that realm. So these are the things that we want to look at. These are the things that we want to address in this podcast. Before we dive into the subject matter more deeply, I want to say this. If you value Agents of Everything, if you get goodness from it, please do rate and review on whatever platform you listen on. If that's Spotify, if that's Apple, if that's anything else, please do give it some love on there that will help bring more people to Agents of Everything. If you've not yet joined the Agents of Everything community on Substack, that is a free subscription. Just sign up there. You can listen to the podcast there, but you can also engage with other people in the community via the comments section. And of course, with me personally via the comment section. And if you want to go deeper in your engagement with me, there's the Agents of Everything Nexus, which is a mentoring program. We meet up monthly online and there's a whole resource library of materials Dedicated to creating ourselves as the primary creative force in our own lives. You can find out about that in the comments, not the comments in the um, description. That's what I'm trying to say here. All right, let's dive into this. Let's dive into certainty. And why is perhaps not always a good thing? So I named this episode, Certainty Will Destroy Us All. Maybe, maybe is something that has been with me that has traveled with me It's an anchor a personal anchor in a sense or at least i've co-opted it from robert anton wilson but maybe is a little personal touchstone that i've used to bring myself back to a place of uncertainty when i feel that i'm being taken by certainty or invited into certainty by somebody in fact i was talking to my friend John Morgan, J.P. Morgan Jr., just a few days ago about how when we first met back on the London street hypnosis scene, and we were often discussing how hypnosis worked and all sorts of things to do with the mind and influence and this kind of thing. And John would come up with some idea or theory or whatever, and I would often respond, maybe. And it would drive John absolutely up the wall. Now, he was saying to me just not that long ago how He understands why now that I would always respond with maybe, because he has become a lover of maybe also, a lover of staying in that place of, well, what is the opposite of certainty? Perhaps this is a good place for us to start, a good place for us to dive in. If you ask most people what the opposite of certainty is. 99% of people will say uncertainty, right? And uncertainty, does that sound, as you think about that, does that sound like a good thing? Uncertainty. People often relate uncertainty with insecurity. Okay. And this starts to shine a light on why people have this real grabby attachment to the idea of certainty. Because the opposite of certainty seems to be uncertainty and insecurity. We often think unconsciously, in order to be really safe and secure, and to know that I'm okay, I need to know how everything is and that everything is safe and I need certainty about this. And if I am uncertain, well, you know, I'm thinking of those old maps you used to get back from the kind of 14th century, where they have the known world and then the unknown world at the edge and there be dragons and this kind of thing. You know, that's something that's in the archetypal consciousness. Out there in the unknown, there'd be dragons, there'd be wolves, there'd be bad creatures, right? This is how a lot of people relate to uncertainty, relate to the unknown. This is also why they cling to it. And when somebody starts to undermine a person's certainty, or if there seems to be a threat to a person's certainty, they often respond via their threat response systems, fight, flight, freeze, hide, avoid, submit. Okay. They can come out with aggression. They can come out with fear. They can come out with running away. They can come out with like, you're making me feel unsafe, whatever it might be. Okay. They lose their groundedness, their grounding, their ground of being because they need a certain certainty about how the world is in order to have that. I agree, by the way, sometimes having a certain certainty about how the world is, is important, but striving to get certainty about things you can never be certain about doesn't help you do that. right, but maybe we'll come to that in a later point in the episode. So I'm going to suggest right now that there is a different opposite to certainty that will throw some light on the concept in a more useful way. And this alternative opposite is possibility. Okay. The opposite to certainty is possibility. Or certainly, certainly he says, possibility and certainty are mutually exclusive or would seem to be so, right? Because when you are certain about how something is, you are equally certain about how it is not, that is every other way it could be. It is not, there are no other possibilities. There is no alternative. This is the way that it is, right? So once we start to live into certainty and chase certainty, we start to shut ourselves down from possibility. It closes our mind. This is not good if we want to transform our own engagement with the world, right? The results that you habitually get in your life right now will be a product of the way that you see the world. If you are attached to the way you see the world, when I'm working with people one-on-one, I often talk about people's cherished truths. These are the things they are absolutely sure are true. And I point out that all the time that people hold on to their fundamental cherished truths, they will get no significant difference in their life. In Taijiquan, the uh, Chinese martial art, in the philosophy of it, and particularly the philosophy of the pedagogy of it, right? There's this idea that in order to profit, you must invest in loss. What that's pointing to is everything that you're certain about will keep you stuck exactly where you are. And if you wish to progress, you need to let go of that stuff. You need to invest in loss. You need to lose the certainty in order to open to the possibility, in order to open up new realms of exploration, right? So this is hugely important. Now, this starts to create something of a conundrum for some people, because they go, well, hang on, I, I, I wanna be able to act in the world boldly, clearly, with certainty, but how can I act in the world with certainty if I don't have certainty, right? So I need to get certainty in order to be able to act clearly and boldly, but then at the same time, I'm then going to shut myself off to possibility. So how can I keep myself open to possibility and still act with certainty in the world? Well, I'm going to offer you a distinction here. And it might be clumsily worded, so forgive me, but it's the best I've got right now. It's the distinction of epistemological certainty versus attitudinal certainty, right? Now, people conflate these two all the time without realizing they're doing it. So epistemological certainty is a lot of what we've been talking about so far. It is certainty about what is or isn't so, okay? Certainty about what is or isn't so attitudinal certainty is certainty in action, being able to boldly choose this or that, that way or that way, up, down, left, right, forward, back. Which way am I going, right? Now, I'm a big believer in movement in the world. I think the more we hesitate, the more we dither. Life doesn't wait for us while we hesitate and dither. It keeps moving. Life is always flowing. Life is always unfolding. If we're not moving with it, if we're not dancing with it, we're either being washed away or we're being left behind. So if we want to co-create with reality, we need to be bold in our actions, right? We need to be able to move. We need to be free to move with the world. Now we need to be free to move with the world without knowing how the world is hundred percent. And if we stop to try and figure out how it is, we're going to get stuck. This manifests in two ways, by the way. So in a personal way, I end up coaching a lot of people who get stuck in what I call the myth of the right decision. They're always up in their head deciding, well, should I do this? Or should I do that? Right? Is this the right thing? Am I making the right choice right now? Am I not? Now the myth of the right decision is founded in the idea that there is a correct action to be taken at any given time. And you can't take the action until you know that it's correct, right? You need certainty. You cannot act without certainty. So these people get stuck because they're trying to know the unknowable. I often say, I say, so if you make a decision, how do you know it's the right decision? And the truth is nobody knows anything is the right decision until after they have made it. That's the only time you can evaluate it after the facts, when you see what it brought you. Even then, it's not an objective evaluation, right? It's just a decision you make depending on how you look at it and um, you know, how you frame it for yourself, how you create with it. Now, I mentioned this probably elsewhere. I read this book years ago. I listened to the audiobook of it. It's called The Way of the Superior Man by David Dada. I didn't listen to all of it because I couldn't bear it. Maybe if I'd have read the book run and listened to the audiobook, it would have been different. But this guy at the time, he was just baking my noodle. I thought he was absolutely full of it. Apart from one particular line he dropped in that book, it completely blew my mind. Right? It was absolutely, totally worth it for this line. And the line was this, life is just the correction of one mistake into the next. Now this was a major game-changing piece for me. It sort of stuck with me ever since. Everything that we do is a mistake, right? You could look at it like that. If we're free to see it as a mistake, if we're free to go, we're just going to make mistakes anyway. And by mistake here, what I mean is anything that we do will never bring about a perfect set of circumstances as a result, right? Anything you create in the world will be an imperfect creation, or if you prefer, it will be perfectly what it is. It will be everything that it is and nothing that it's not. Whether you look at it as absolutely perfect or absolutely imperfect is fine. The truth of the matter is it's everything it is, and it is nothing that it is not. So whatever we do brings about a certain set of results. And then those results are where we take our next action from. That's all there is to life, right? And that will produce yet another set of imperfect quote unquote results. And we get to choose how we create forward with those. So speaking for myself and when I'm coaching people from my biases, what I'm looking to do is bring people to a point where they're not trying to operate on a certainty about how something will come out. They don't know how it will come out. What I'm often doing is inviting people into a new certainty. And that is the certainty that whatever happens, they'll handle it or they'll create with it, right? That they can show up in any set of circumstances and create forward with those in their life. When you have that certainty, when you live into yourself as the primary creative force in your life, as a creator, as someone who can take any set of circumstances and dance with them, move with them, create with them, create with what comes up is the way I put it. Now I have a certainty in that, but is it an epistemological certainty? No, it isn't. It isn't a certainty about what is or isn't so in the world. It is a certainty in my choice of being and engaging, right? And and I'm not trying to say, look, it's my choice, I'm superior, whatever. When I coach people, I coach from my biases. The stuff that I'm interested in, for me, it's Gong Fu. That means high skill arrived at through engagement and work, right? My Gong Fu is figuring out how to be the primary creative force in my own life, to borrow a phrase from Robert Fritz, right? I've been into this for years, okay? Am I perfect at it? Absolutely not. But I do coach from my biases. And I do know that in my own mind and in my own life, When I moved from I need to know, right, I've got to know, how can I act if I don't know to I can act whenever I can act with very, very scant information. I can act from a place of complete epistemological uncertainty and I can act attitudinally with absolute certainty that I can move and I will move and whatever comes out as a result, I will create forward with that. Now this, I'm not going to speak personally. I'm going to own my biases on this. This has been hugely liberating for me in life. I used to be somebody that dithered, that wasn't sure, that didn't stride forward. That was always up in my head trying to work out, should I do this? Should I do that? Right? It was lousy. As I say, you know, my experience of that was the world would move on without me or I would get washed away by the world, one or the other. It wasn't me creatively engaging from an intentional place right now the other advantage that i'm going to suggest to you about having attitudinal certainty developing attitudinal certainty whilst eschewing epistemological certainty is you can always act you can always dance you can always move with the world in real time whilst being completely open to all manner of possibilities right because i said that certainty is the opposite or the enemy of possibility but only epistemological certainty attitudinal certainty is not you're free to act in the world in that way. So I want to share that distinction particularly with you. That's probably enough for this podcast, probably enough. But I do want to say a little bit more about the downsides of what you could call epistemological certainty, i.e. this is the way things are. I'm absolutely certain of this. Being addicted to truth right, your truth or having these cherished truths as I often talk about it when I'm coaching people. So I called this episode, Certainty Will Destroy Us All, maybe, right? That's my touchstone, that maybe. It comes from Robert Anton Wilson. Now, Robert Anton Wilson was like a great many people, hugely influenced by Alfred Korzybski's general semantics. Kozybski was a, a Polish count, but he was also an engineer, I think, a scientist, generally a guy who was interested in the world and the way the world worked. He found himself fighting in the First World War in the thick of that living hell, thinking, what is this insanity? What is this craziness? Why are we here killing people we don't know, trying not to be killed by people we don't know, we have no personal grievances against, yet here we are in this hell fighting this fight. And he was curious, how had it come to this? The people around him seemed sane, but the situation seemed insane or unsane, and yet they were in it. So he was very curious, how do apparently sane human beings come to these unseen situations? He started to look into the mind, into life, into philosophy, into all sorts of things. He had a great number of influences on his work. And he started developing a system, which came to be known as general semantics. He was developing this post-First World War and in the run-up to the Second World War. So he also saw the events building in Nazi Germany, the rise of National Socialism, the rise of Hitler, and it seemed to be happening all over again. And of course, it did happen all over again, Second World War, not too long after the First World War. So Korzybski concluded, basically, that the issue had come about, that this hell on earth had come about, because people jumped too quickly to certainties about things that so they actually could not be certain about, but they were certain about nonetheless. Right? And these led down chains of inferences to crazy and horrific conclusions, oftentimes. His book that he wrote, his Magnum Opus, if you like over a thousand pages long was called science and sanity. Now, sanity here was opposed to unsanity, not insanity, unsanity. He saw these situations of unsanity and he believed that if everybody had a more scientific way of approaching the world and thinking about the world, then of course, everything would be better. We would avoid this kind of unsanity. Now, some people who misunderstand science think that science is about certainty. They think that science is finding out what really is true, but the scientific method is in fact, based in the idea of falsifiability and hypotheses, right? We do not come to certainties. There's no such thing as settled science. Anybody that uses the term settled science doesn't understand science. Anybody that says the science says X, Y, and Z doesn't understand science. Right, science is a process of building better maps and models of the world. It never claims truths about the world, right? And it's important if we're going to do science well, it's important for a good scientist to be willing to question their own presumptions and presuppositions and assumptions, to be open to being falsified in their hypotheses. Science advances through the falsification of previous hypotheses, right? It's important in science to draw conclusions tentatively and to be open to other interpretations. It is important to always stay curious and always stay in the realm of possibilities. All science ever says is this is the best picture we've got right now. This is the best bet that we have right now for a map of how things work, a map of how things work, not for how the territory is. So Korzybski believed that if we could bring this kind of mindset into our everyday life, into our observations about the world, we would fall less into the grip of certainty that often, so often, leads to conflict with others and destruction. Okay? Now, I like Korsybski's work. I'm a fan of Korsybski's work. I also like Robert Anton Wilson's take on it. It's got different metaphors. It's a bit freer. It's got a little bit more levity in it. And um, underpinning in the book, Quantum Psychology, underpinning Robert Anton Wilson's take is that basically anything that we say is true, we're better off recognizing that we're just making a bet on that thing. We're betting on a certain truth horse in the race, so to speak. And then if we're honest about it, if we stop going, this really is true, and we start to go, Well, you know, if I was going to lay my money, I'd say that I think this is closest to the truth. But I'm aware there may be other things that I'm missing and other ways of seeing things that could have value in them as well. If we hold this position, right, we can still have enough solidity in our epistemology to act, but still enough openness to be able to explore differently and look at things differently and to avoid the sense of threat that might come from opposing perspectives. Now, I'm touching on this because when I look out into the world, I see a world of ever increasing polarization and conflict, different tribes dropping into different unquestioned dogmas, attacking each other, insulting each other, trying to shut each other down, and I do not personally, this is my bias, believe this is a good way to generatively co-create in the world okay? I'm aware this is a complex topic. This is a whole rabbit hole we could go down. I'm not going down it in this particular episode, but I'm aware that I could. I want to share a quote from Robert Anton Wilson here, and it's not from his book, Quantum Psychology. It is from a documentary, which you can watch on YouTube. I recommend checking it out. It's a documentary called Maybe Logic, and it's got lots of clips of Robert Anton Wilson, you know, doing talks and responding to questions off the cuff and this kind of thing. This quote comes from that, and it was something that Robert Anton Wilson just riffed on in a moment. It's a live, real-time riff, but my goodness, was it a moment of glorious creation. I'm going to share this quote with you here. I'm going to read it best I can, but you can check it out in the documentary if you find it on YouTube. Long before quantum mechanics, the German philosopher Husserl said, all perception is gamble. Every type of bigotry, every type of racism, sexism, prejudice, every dogmatic ideology that allows people to kill other people with a clear conscience, every stupid cult, every superstition, every kind of ignorance in the world, all results from not realizing that our perceptions are gambles. We believe what we see and then we believe our interpretation of it and we don't even know that we're making an interpretation most of the time. We think that this is reality. In philosophy, this is called naive realism, i.e. what I perceive is reality. And philosophers have refuted naive realism every century for the past 2,500 years, starting with Buddha and Plato, and yet most people still act on the basis of naive realism. Now, the argument is maybe my perceptions are inaccurate, but somewhere there is accuracy. The scientists have it with their instruments. That's how we can find out what's really real. But relativity and quantum mechanics have demonstrated clearly that what you find out with instruments is true only relative to the instrument you are using and where that instrument is located in space-time. So there's no vantage point from which real reality can be seen. And we're always looking from the point of view of our own reality tunnel. And when we begin to realize that we're all looking from the point of view of our own reality tunnel. We find it much easier to understand where other people are coming from. Or the ones who don't have the same reality tunnel to us do not seem as ignorant or deliberately perverse or lying or hypnotized by some mad ideology. They just have a different reality tunnel. And every reality tunnel might tell us something interesting about our world if we are willing to listen. So I absolutely love that quote because... I think that we're charged in the world, if we're collectively creating the future of this planet, right, which we all are, I don't care whether you're interested in doing that, whether you're just interested in getting on with your life, you're still participating in the ongoing creation of what is happening on this planet, right? We're always going to have to work with other people. We're always going to have to co-create with other people. If we want to be able to engage generatively with other people, we need to be able to engage generatively with people who see the world in very different ways. Ways. And if all we can do is bicker and fight with those people because their way of seeing the world is a threat to us because of our certainty addictions, our cherished truths, you know, our inability to be okay with not knowing, okay with potentially being wrong, right? If we act like somebody with a different worldview is a threat to us, we can never co create with them, we can only do battle with them. And that means we end up living on a planet of endless conflict. Now, personally, I'm not some peacenick who's like, yeah, man, you know, all we need is love and hands around the world and all of this. But, you know, I do want to live in a nice world. Okay. It's a purely selfish, you know, for me, my family, the people important to me. I don't know. Maybe I just like human beings and think that wouldn't it be good in life in general, if we can live the good life. I don't really want to see the world come to conflict and more founded in destructive argument with people who might otherwise be close collaborators. So uh, I don't think that's a good thing. I think it is good to be able to suspend our judgment and work with other people, become curious about perhaps how they see things. Now, what is it that leads us to fight others, to become angry? I've worked a lot with people who have anger issues, worked a lot with aggressive people, Okay, through the change work that I do. One of the things I often point out to people when they get angry, I say, if you noticed that when you're absolutely angry, right, how would you judge the quality of your thinking in that moment? Right? Most people go, uh, well, I don't know. I guess uh, I'm not really thinking. I say, so you're not doing good quality thinking at all. Well, no. Have you also noticed that you're very, very certain? And go, yeah. Go, isn't that interesting? How as your certainty rises, the quality of your thinking falls. Doesn't that seem odd, right? And of course, I'm inviting people into a little moment of cognitive dissonance, a little moment where we might blow something out. And, And sometimes you get a big effect from that and sometimes not so much of a big effect. But it's an interesting thing to point out nonetheless. When people are angry, when people are rageful, man, are they certain. They're absolutely certain. You cannot be angry and rageful if you're uncertain. You cannot do it. It's impossible. It's a curious thing. In his massive work, The Master and His hemisphere, Ian McGilchrist points out that it's a mistake to look at the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere as you know, being different in terms of what they do. The left hemisphere does language. The right hemisphere does, I don't know, pictures the left hemisphere is uh is productive the right hemisphere is creative although there's some truth to that that every part of the brain is involved in pretty much everything just the left and the right hemisphere do things differently so one classic idea is that the left hemisphere is about reason and the right hemisphere is about emotion but debunks this he brings out evidence to show this isn't the case but Different emotions do seem to be related to different hemispheres to a certain degree. And that one area that you see hemispheric activation in the left hemisphere, particularly, is anxiety and anger. Seems to be that they are associated with heightened left hemisphere activity. Now, the left hemisphere is also the hemisphere that does certainty. Right hemisphere doesn't need certainty. The right hemisphere just participates. It just dances with what is. The left hemisphere's gut to know how things are. So it gets upset, it would seem, when certainty is shaken, right? When certainty is rocked. A lot of people, they want to get a sense of who they are. They start to even identify with their certainties about the world. They identify with their beliefs. They identify with their belief systems. If this is something that you've done, if you have identified with on an egoic level, your beliefs and your belief systems, a challenge to your beliefs and your belief systems will be perceived by you unconsciously as a threat and an existential threat. What can you do but fight back when there's an existential threat? This is why in the political arena, you get these polarizations. You get people getting vitriolic. Why? Because they literally perceive the views of the quote-unquote other side as being some kind of existential threat to them this is a mind-made illusion however real it seems it's not real it's just different people with different ways of seeing things and of course they've got their certainties if they're responding from threat as well they're going to attack and you're going to feel you're more threatened so you'll attack back and then you get this escalation right? But if we can fall out into a place of maybe, we have some hope of engaging generatively. There's a guy called Milton Rokeach. He wrote a book called The Open and Closed Mind. I have a feeling I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I'm going to mention it again here. Rokeach suggested that we human beings seem to be driven by two opposing forces in our engagement with the world. That the first of these opposing forces is A desire to explore, to discover more, to enrich our knowledge, enrich our understanding. This is the first of the forces, or the second, the order isn't really important. The other force is the desire to protect, right? So one wants to go out into the world, discover more. The other wants to draw in, to defend, to close down, right? Open up, close down. The book's called The Open and Closed Mind. So. We've got these two forces, and how do they work? Because they seem to be in contradiction to each other. Well, it seems to be that it depends on what we're experiencing in our world and in our lives as to which we go into. And when we feel that we are under threat, we basically go into a closed-mind way of doing the world, right? The marker of which, for Rokic, is what he calls two-value thinking. Everything's right, wrong, good, bad, nonsense, truth, whatever. It's binary polarized thinking. When people go into an open mind, they have what's called multi-valued thinking, right? There are nuances of truth. There are shades of gray. There are different ways of looking at things. There are perspectives over truths, right? Now, we can only really generatively co-create with others when we're in a space of multi-valued thinking. We cannot create from two-value thinking. We cannot create from a closed mind. We cannot co-create. So Rokic notes this, he also points out that everybody has not just a belief system, but a disbelief system, what he calls a disbelief system. And this becomes particularly prevalent when we go into two-valued thinking. This everything we absolutely believe is true and everything we absolutely believe is not true. So we lose our nuance there. And then we cannot see distinctions between things that are in our disbelief system. So for example, if somebody who is a true believer in uh Evidence-based medicine, for example, they might see everything that's not evidence-based medicine as complete quackery, right? It's all just quackery. And therefore there are no shades of gray or nuances amongst that quackery. There's no difference in their mind between chiropractic and crystal healing, right? Or anything that hasn't got an evidence base. It's all just the same woo-woo nonsense to them. It's all part of their disbelief system. They cannot be open-minded to anything that is in their disbelief system. They will reject it. Absolutely. And I'm just using that as an example, by the way. I'm not trying to be an advocate for alternative health here. I'm just using it as an illustration. So Rokic is particularly interested in how we can communicate with others in what I would call generative ways. He wants to be able to open people's minds, not close them down. And he observes that the way most people engage in discourse shuts down the other people's minds, right? So how do you open another person's mind? If you want to engage with another human being and you want them to be open to change their mind, it is absolutely essential that you are open to changing your mind. If you want them to be open to different possibilities, it is absolutely essential that you too are open to different possibilities. If you wish them to be open to falsification, you too must be open to falsification. This is a challenge for most people. This is not where most people come from, when they're trying to change another person's mind, they see another person who is in a different reality tunnel from them, that person's very certain of their realities and they too are certain of the realities. So person A and person B, both absolutely certain in their own selected, cherished truths. And they see the job of changing the mind of the others is to move them from their old certainty to a new certainty that aligns with their personal reality tunnel, right? They have corrected this person's worldview. They have disabused them of their erroneous notions. It just never works. Have you ever seen it well? So Rokic points out that if you wish to open another person's mind, you must have an open mind yourself. He recommends the first move being when you hear anything that anybody says, if you find yourself immediately disagreeing with it, i.e. Dropping into premature cognitive closure, dropping into your certainties. Instead, you remember that there is at least one point of truth out of a potential arbitrary hundred points of truth. So he says, you don't go true, false, you go multi-valued. Everything that anyone believes has a truth value of one to a hundred, never zero. There's some kind of truth in any statement that anybody could make. Now, I'm going to preempt some counters to that in a moment. But before I do, I want to say this isn't about facts. Someone will go, well, that's not true, right? Back into the true-false binary. This isn't about a fact. It's not a fact that there's a hundred potential truth points to something that somebody says. It is a way of organizing an attitude right? This isn't about truth. It's about attitude. If you can approach another person and go, where's the truth in this? You become curious. You have to ask some questions. You have to do some diggings, not from the perspective of setting them up for a gotcha moment, but from a place of genuine curiosity. How have they arrived at this position? Why have they arrived at this position? What have they seen? What have they experienced that has brought them to this belief? right? If you choose understanding a person over the assumption, the certainty that you already understand them, then you're in a position to actually start creating together. Because what happens, Rokeach will point out, is you're now no longer attacking this person. You're actually honoring their perspectives. That has their guard come down, right? Their threat response systems go offline. And the threat response systems being online is what kept them in their certainty, in their two value system. So you want to influence somebody else. You have to be curious, genuinely about how they came to see things as they do. From this place, you can co-create. From this place, you can find commonalities. You can both enrich your thinking. You can both learn together. Although most people go, well, there's nothing to learn from this ignorant person. You know, and maybe sometimes, maybe sometimes there might not be, who knows. So I want to open your mind to that possibility as well. And I want to point out how hard this is to do in a Twitter thread, right? Or in a Facebook comment section or something like that. If you're going to be in a Facebook comment section, somebody says something you're like, and you want to get curious, you know, that's a whole day's work that you have to put into drawing out that understanding. Do you have that time to commit? If it was a face-to-face conversation, it might be five minutes. There's a whole bunch of stuff that cannot be done via social media, via sound bites, via this kind of thing. Generative conversation is one of those things. I used to believe you could have generative conversation on social media, and I no longer do, at least not with somebody who's reacting against you. Even if they're reacting against you, there's so much work to be done to open it up. To me, I don't have those resources to put into it anymore. All right, let's round this out. Certainty will destroy. Us all. Why did I say that? Apparently, with such certainty, but I did add the maybe. I said it because I believe, and this is an article of faith, that we all operate best in the world when we're operating from our most creative, highest selves, not when we're operating from our lower, reactive, fear driven, panicking selves. Right? I'm aware the world is a complex place. It's difficult to make sense of it, it's difficult to create. Solutions for power and problems and pathways forward that seem to be uh, good in aggregate, you know, without robbing people of their individuality or anything like that, right? It's, it's tricky. The world is messy. It's not smooth. We need to be alive. We need to bring our best selves to it. I think if we're not alive, if we're not bringing our best selves to it, catastrophe beckons, possibly. Or maybe not. Maybe life is just a correction of one mistake to the next, maybe even the biggest mistakes. Just unfold into something new and different. Who knows? But I would advocate if you want to be able to engage with the world generatively, you learn to connect with possibility. You learn to stay in a place of open mindedness and disidentify from your beliefs. You are not your beliefs, right? Being wrong about something, quote unquote, is okay. It's a good thing. It's the only path to growth. It's all right. You will survive losing a cherished truth or having a cherished truth revealed as being an illusion or a mental fallacy. Okay, probably a good place to wrap. Thank you for being here. If you're here at the end, if you like this podcast, please do give it a like, please do give it a thumbs up somewhere. And if you've got any questions or comments, please do share them via the Agents of Everything Substack. And I look forward to when we next connect.